History This Week, June 21st, 1964. I'm Sally Helm. It's around 10 p.m. in central Mississippi. Three civil rights workers have just been released from jail. They were arrested earlier in the day, allegedly for speeding. They've paid their $20 fine and been allowed to leave. As they head out the door, the deputy tells them, see how quickly you can get out of Neshoba County. These men don't need telling twice. They know what can happen to civil rights workers in Mississippi. Two of them, James Cheney and Michael Schwerner, are experienced activists. The third, Andrew Goodman, is a newly arrived volunteer. Cheney is black, born and raised in Mississippi. Schwerner and Goodman are white New Yorkers. All three of the men are young, 20, 21, and 24 years old. They start to drive home down a dark, rural highway. And then they realize they're being followed by two cars and a police cruiser, all full of white men. They turn off the highway trying to get away, but it doesn't work. Their pursuers catch up to them. The three men are forced out of their station wagon into the police cruiser. They're taken to a remote spot called Rock Cut Road. The cruiser slows to a halt. The next morning, a headline in the local paper reads, Three civil rights workers reported missing. We didn't try to wait until they found the bodies. Given the circumstances, we knew they were dead. Today, the story of a pivotal action in the civil rights movement. Freedom Summer. What happened when experienced Black organizers teamed up with hundreds of white volunteers to take on the structures of power? And how did the disappearance of these three men finally make the nation take a hard look at what was happening in Mississippi? For History When You Want It, sign up for an extended 30-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 documentaries and series from the History Channel, commercial-free on your favorite device. Plus, new videos are added to History Vault every week. Sign up now and explore the greatest stories in history, from ancient civilizations to American history, modern warfare, and more. To start your extended 30-day free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman were in Neshoba County that day in June to investigate an act of violence. The Ku Klux Klan had attacked a church that had been a gathering place for civil rights activists. They set the building on fire and then beat up Black parishioners as they tried to flee. This kind of thing wasn't rare in Mississippi. The state had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the nation. The perpetrators of violence were lawyers, judges, sheriffs, doctors. Black Mississippians had to fear for their lives, and most were forced to live in extreme poverty. That day in June 1964, the burning of Mount Zion Church was just the latest in an unending string of violent attacks. 
people were fed up and tired. It fell to three 20-something men, two of whom had grown up in New York, to investigate this crime. And to understand that part of the story, you have to meet Bob Moses. If you know New York City and where Yankee Stadium is on the edge of the Harlem River, we moved in there when I was two years old. Moses spent his formative years in New York City. Then he went to Hamilton College, where he was one of very few Black students. In 1960, he's in his mid-20s. He's a high school math teacher. And he's following the unfolding civil rights movement. I watched the newspapers with the pictures of the sitting kids that were all of a sudden young Black kids appearing on the front page of the New York Times. They had never appeared there before. And I felt like, well, I have to see this up close. A lot of the action is taking place far away, in the South. And Moses decides to go down and get involved. That summer, he ends up taking a bus trip through the South to help recruit other young people to the cause. And there, he sees violence that hasn't been making the front page. For example, in Birmingham. They were just systematically bombing houses in the Black neighborhood. And none of that news was available nationally. It just wasn't news, I guess. On that same trip, Moses travels into the very heart of racist violence in the South, Mississippi. It was in Cleveland, Mississippi, in the Delta, that I met Andy Moore, who actually knew what to do. He said, you know, there's, there's no particular reason to come and sit in in the Delta, but there is every reason to work on voter registration. At the time, there were about 1.2 million white people living in Mississippi and just over 900,000 Black people. But only about 5% of the state's Black population was registered to vote. Some counties didn't have a single registered Black voter. For a reason. If you registered to vote, your name would be printed in the paper, and that might make you a target for violence and intimidation. You could be fired, evicted, even killed. And it blew my mind. I had been listening, you know, all through college and high graduate everywhere about the Iron Curtain and the need for the people behind it to vote and everything. No one ever mentioned we had a whole congressional district. I'm majority Black and nobody was voting. So um, I signed up. I, I said to Angie, I'm, I'm going to come back and work with you. By the way, Amzie Moore, the man Moses just mentioned, he's a civil rights leader and one of dozens of people Moses credited in our interview. I mentioned Bob Spiker, Ella Baker, James Denver, John Doerr, Tim Jenkins, C.C. Bryant, Septima Clark, Red Bowens. Moses is a civil rights icon, though not necessarily a household name. And in our interview, it became clear that he's the type of leader who doesn't see himself working alone. He kept crediting this huge network of people all working together. Moses ends up moving to Mississippi and starts registering voters alongside Amzie Moore and many others. They're working at a very grassroots level. And in the country at large in the early 60s, the civil rights movement is picking up steam. In August 1963, there's the famous March on Washington, where Dr. Martin Luther King makes his I Have a Dream speech. But Mississippi 
really feels like a place apart. Through his work, Moses is becoming intimately acquainted with the violence there. He's been beat up by the highway patrol. He's seen friends and colleagues murdered without consequences. And that drives home to him this difficult truth. What was happening to Black people was not important to the country. What happens to white kids at prestigious universities is. This becomes the seed of a powerful political idea. Tell me about the idea for the Summer Project. Where did that come from? Well, that's the interesting part because we weren't really into, well, whose idea is this? And whose idea is that? The idea was this. What if we bring privileged white students into Mississippi to help with voter registration efforts? What kind of extra attention could that bring to the cause? The fact of their coming and living among Black people in Mississippi was itself socially, politically, culturally revolutionary. It had never happened. And so they brought the country with them. And the country, through their eyes, was forced to take a look at itself. Just doing that was a goal. Among the Black organizers, this idea was controversial. To this day, people have said, well, that should never have happened. The staff members felt that this was sort of their project and that it was important that it was really run by young African-American field secretaries. But we were actually in position to see if we could get a much larger commitment. A commitment from white people around the country who didn't seem to care about what was happening in Mississippi. And so, in the summer of 1964, the organizers launched the Mississippi Summer Project, later called Freedom Summer. In June, about 800 white, mostly middle-class students gather on a college campus in Ohio for training. They'll be taught by experienced Black organizers. Among the white students is Heather Booth, an 18-year-old from New York. We talked to her about what it was like in Ohio. So there were role plays that we were subjected to where we either had to act as the white racists catcalling other freedom workers, attacking them, and then also role-playing as volunteers, not succumbing to violence ourselves, and the overall importance of just protecting people's lives. There were also talks about the history and politics of Mississippi. At one, white volunteers saw a video of a white registrar in the state who prevented Black voters from exercising their rights. And he's a huge guy, you know, maybe 300 pounds. The volunteers all burst out laughing, and that really set off the field secretaries. This person wasn't a joke, but a real serious impediment to their freedom. They knew him personally. There was a real tension that many felt. In part, the question of learning about each other's cultures and background and the history but also making sure that the white Northern students understood the Black people of Mississippi were the people who were taking the risks. They were the people who were doing the work. They had been doing the work for years. And as white volunteers, we were there to help and support and that we were not coming down with the arrogance that we often had of 
to show and to teach and to tell the people of Mississippi what we knew. And that tension broke out in one of the large plenary sessions that we had where some of the Black SNCC staff said that we would be sacrificial lambs. I was stunned by that. On June 20th, the first wave of volunteers heads down to Mississippi. The next day, Moses gets a terrible phone call. Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman are missing, assumed dead. Yes, so that was devastating. Um, that was really devastating. At that time, Heather and the rest of her training class are still in Ohio, and they gather to hear Bob Moses address the volunteers. Well, Bob convened us into uh, one of these auditorium plenary sessions to tell us that three of the young volunteers were missing, and they probably were dead. Because they are about to walk into it, and they have to understand that this is real, this is so I, I basically talked to them in a way I thought maybe they might relate to because they were reading Tolkien and The Hobbit. I remember he told us the story of the Lord of the Rings and how power can corrupt and distort people's views. And the impression I got is that we're really in a struggle for people's lives, for the sharing of power. And then we had some... And somebody sang a song, and then they had to think through whether they could stay or not. Because, you know, you can't do a political rally cry and say, yes, we're going to do this. It's just the opposite of that. It's inside you. Are you up to it? And every person had to go inside him or herself and figure that out. And it was important that they do that on their own. It was, in some sense, their real introduction. And if anything, it increased my commitment and my will to go. Almost every single one of them stayed. I didn't know what to expect, actually. So it's not that I was surprised by it. I was gratified, deeply gratified by it. And I think that uh, helped the staff. This felt like the beginning of that broader commitment organizers had hoped for. The 800 students had to face the fact that their lives were at stake. And they went to Mississippi anyway. The cause was worth dying for. A few days after Moses' speech, the second wave of volunteers leaves Ohio. Getting to know each other on the bus, a lot of chatting. Remember, these are teenagers. There was a lot of singing. Singing always helped bind us together. And meanwhile, every news outlet in the country is reporting on the three missing men. And the idea that now all these other young white college kids might be in danger prompted parents all over. They immediately began worrying their Congress people, White House, you know, because their, their, their daughter, their son, was going down to this place where people had been abducted. 
150 FBI agents have been dispatched to Mississippi to launch an investigation into the disappearances. And in Washington, D.C., President Lyndon B. Johnson is under pressure. He's been in the Oval Office for less than a year. He'd been Kennedy's vice president up until the assassination. And Johnson is facing a big piece of legislation, the Civil Rights Act. It will offer significant protections for Black Americans. But for Johnson, signing this bill is politically risky. He faces an election in the fall, and it will be his first time running at the top of the ticket. To win, he'll need Southern voters. Voters who will almost certainly turn on him if he signs the Civil Rights Act. But with the media coverage and the growing outrage over these disappearances, there is intense pressure from the civil rights movement and its supporters to pass the act. Less than two weeks after Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman are reported missing, Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act into law. It's a huge victory for the movement, right at the beginning of Freedom Summer. But in Mississippi, the project is really just getting started. We spent a lot of time getting people signed up, getting ready to go down to the courthouse and register to vote. When we brought them down and supported their taking this courageous steps to register, we were arrested. The volunteers were arrested and we were held overnight. All over the state, local government and the Klan are working to prevent voter registration. But progress is being made. Over 1,000 Black voters get registered that summer. Forty Freedom Schools are teaching literacy and Black history and sparking conversations about civics and activism and government. The white volunteers are living side by side with Black families and Black activists. Meanwhile, the FBI is investigating the disappearances. And as they search for Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman, they find something else. It turned out there were several murders of young Black boys that they discovered when they started investigating. Eight bodies are found. None of them is Cheney, Schwerner, or Goodman. All of them are young Black men whose murders hadn't been investigated. Today, we still only know three of their names. Henry D., Charles Moore, and Herbert Orsby. In the shadow of continued violence, while volunteers continue to focus on grassroots activism, Bob Moses and other leaders decide to focus on a national plan. I spent a lot of time working on the convention challenge. The convention challenge. The Democratic National Convention is set to happen that August in Atlantic City. And Mississippi's delegation is completely white. They're known as the Dixiecrats, and they've threatened to turn Republican. They're angry that Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. So civil rights leaders see an opportunity. If the Dixiecrats leave, someone could take their place. They've been organizing this new political party run by Black voters, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And they decide, let's seat the MFDP at the convention. The MFDP holds local elections with newly registered Black voters to pick delegates. And in August, they're ready. And they head up to Atlantic City. 
The MFDP is ready for their big showdown on the convention floor. But two days before the convention, they get some terrible news. The bodies of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman have been found, buried in an earthen dam on the property of a known Klan member. They already knew the men were dead, but the discovery of their bodies brings even more clarity to the movement at the convention. And it brings more national support to their cause. On the boardwalk outside, activists hold posters of the three slain civil rights workers. And inside, they make their case to the Credentials Committee, who will get to decide who the official delegates will be. The strategy was to go before the Credentials Committee, and the star, of course, was Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer had grown up in a sharecropping family in the Mississippi Delta. When she tried to register to vote, she'd been beaten and shot at. She still registered, but then she was fired and evicted. She had become an important civil rights organizer. And at the convention, she gives this powerful testimony. She sits at a table with her hands folded in front of her, speaking to this sea of white faces. I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? Thank you. The testimony is broadcast on national TV. But in the middle... President Johnson holds an emergency press conference. That day marks the nine-month anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination. Seemingly, he's just trying to get Fannie Lou Hamer's searing speech off the air. But it backfired because they replayed her speech that night on the three networks. We only had three networks then. The activists have momentum. They feel like they might win. And Johnson is worried. He thinks that seating the MFDP could lose him the entire Southern vote in the upcoming election. He's working behind the scenes to wrap this up quickly and quietly. At one point, Moses and other leaders get called into a meeting with representatives from the DNC, apparently to talk about a compromise. Fannie Lou Hamer was there, and Ed King, and Aaron Henry, Andy Young, Martin Luther King. But then in the middle of this, there's a knock on the door and the reporters are all outside because they're announcing to us that it has already happened, that the Credentials Committee has voted. While the leaders are in this meeting, a compromise has been officially passed. The MFDP will get two, quote, delegates at large at the convention, along with a statement that the Democratic Party stands in opposition to white supremacy. It's a sort of made-up olive branch. The term delegates at large doesn't really mean anything. These delegates have no real power. To Moses, it's not acceptable. That was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back in that case. And we stormed out of the meeting, at least I did. The white Dixiecrats are mad, too. They refuse to make this anti-white supremacy statement. Instead, they walk out. That night the convention's opening night, the activists decide to organize an action. They'll be seated at the convention no matter what it takes. 
I found, I think, two representatives from Midwest states who are African Americans who loaned me their badges. And so I would wear one and then make, I don't know, 20 or more trips. I found a side door that we could go through and uh, one by one uh, brought in the members of the MFDP to the convention floor. They stage a sit-in in Mississippi's open seats. Eventually, some white delegates and security guards surround them and escort them from the hall. The next day, when the MFDP returns to the convention floor... They took away all the chairs from Mississippi and sent a group of FBI agents and surrounded that spot for the whole convention. So the activists stand. They sing freedom songs. And at the end of that final day, they watch as Lyndon Johnson is officially nominated for president. This loss at the Democratic National Convention becomes Freedom Summer's unfortunate end. It comes with a sense of both change and stagnation. On the one hand, the violence and disenfranchisement of Black people in Mississippi really is in the national spotlight now. And within a year, the Voting Rights Act passes. By 1970, roughly 67% of the Black population in Mississippi will be registered to vote. Remember, it was about 5% at the beginning of the decade. And the FBI does eventually arrest 18 of the men who are responsible for the murders of Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman. But on the other hand, none of them serves more than five years in prison. Until 2005, when just one of the 18 is finally charged with murder. He ultimately dies in prison in 2018. He was 92. Many of the people that his crimes impacted didn't live to see justice done. So... The legacy of Freedom Summer? Never really been articulated in a way that I think does it justice. This was a struggle for first-class citizenship. A struggle that goes on to this day, 56 years later, as protests have spread across the country over police brutality. The names of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey are some of the most recent that grief-stricken activists are calling out as they demand justice. The idea of citizenship has never been fully realized for African Americans and certainly other populations in the country from the very beginning. And so part of the legacy is the idea that we the people, the constitutional people, should actually reach down and embrace everybody, including uh, African-Americans. The legacy of Freedom Summer, he says, is an idea, not yet a reality. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. And we've been talking about voter registration. Don't underestimate the power of your vote. 
For more information, you can go to vote.org and learn about your upcoming local elections. This podcast is produced by McKamey Lynn, Emma Fredericks, Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Chris Boniello. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.